and we're back with another new episode. So, hey everyone, just how's everyone doing this week? And hopefully everyone had a great week this week, and hopefully everyone have a good week this week. So I just want to let everyone know that this episode may, quick disclaimer, this episode may contain violence against animals, children, and or adults. Just want to let you know if that does make you squeamish, I'll tell you when there's a particular part coming up. That if you are going to be eating when listening, I would not recommend it because it can get, it is very nasty. <clears throat> okay, so there's a couple things I want to talk about. Um, I int- just made an Instagram recently for this podcast. And if you're interesting to, interested in subscribing it, it is crime underscore candy. And that's... Instagram I created for this case created for this podcast if you guys have any questions or comments or anything you can leave them there so if you don't remember sometimes I do forget because it's been a week um, the we introduced uh, Candace Montgomery and Betty Gore of Wiley Texas and how their friendship and how a relationship developed between Candy Montgomery and Alan Gore and sort of the fallout that they had out for, had from the affair and how it was beneficial for both of them to end the affair. <laughs> so let's get started in today's episode. Okay, so during the year of 1980, when the affair was at an end between Alan and Candy, Betty had begun to question her husband about his whereabouts, especially if he was gone overnight. Alan had begun to, Alan had begun to heed these complaints, he concluded that this was more than just whining. Betty, there's a thing that Betty could have had postnatal depression, especially after the birth of Bethany, her second child, but there unfortunately was no confirming diagnosis. And they, uh, during the 80s, would have called it something else. So he was generally overly concerned about leaving his wife for a business trip to St. Paul. But what made this trip different was that was vacation that would take place after. A week from now, he and Betty would be in Europe, vacationing without the kids for the first time in four years. And were not for ben, Betty's tendency to worry too much about planning for vacation, there would be enough to keep her happy. Last night, Betty had sounded positively, had sounded positively radiant on the phone, describing the upcoming trip to Joanne Garlington as a second honeymoon. Then this morning, she had broken down. Betty was almost two weeks late with her period, which was a cause for more concern, because these last two pregnancies were not easy at all, especially since they had to plan down to the letter about when the two, when the last two babies were going to be conceived. So on the day of his business trip, June 13th, 1980, he decided to call his wife from the airport before he left. The phone rang seven or eight times, so he hung up and dialed again. When he got no answer a second time, he assumed that Betty was taking her afternoon walk with Bethany. So by 7.45 p.m., Alan and his work colleagues had checked into the Armada Inn on Old Hudson Road. Alan was sitting in his room in his bed, going back over everything that had happened that day, wondered if he had forgotten something Betty had said that morning. He dialed the number of his house again and let it ring 15 times, then he hung up. He decided to call the operator and had her dial his landline phone number, but still got no answer. So he picked up the phone again, requested directory assistance in Wiley, Texas, and got the number for Richard Parker, his next-door neighbor. 
and yeah there's no cell phones during the, no cell phones like we have now so you actually had to dial up for everything <clears throat> anyways when richard answered alan said richard this is alan gore sorry to bother you but i'm out of town and i'm trying to get betty on the phone i think the phone must be out of order would you mind knocking on the door over there just to see if she's home yeah okay said richard Richard, wearing only slacks and an undershirt, slipped out his front door and hurried across the gore lawn in his bare feet. He then rapped hard on the front door and waited for an answer. He rang the doorbell, he waited for a few more seconds, and then sprinted back across the grass. No answer, Alan. She must be out. Okay, Alan said. Thanks for checking. I'll call her later. Glad to, old buddy. Alan was now starting to worry. On an impulse, he dialed the number for Candy Montgomery, who was babysitting Alan's oldest daughter, Alyssa. She picked it up after one ring. Candy, this is Alan. Have you seen Betty? Oh, Alan, where are you? I'm in, a Minnes I'm in Minnesota on a business trip. I've been trying to get Betty, but no one answers. And I thought you might have talked to her today. I saw her this morning when I went to pick up Alyssa's swimsuit. Do you happen to know if she had any plans? No, but I still have Alyssa. There was a change of plans this morning. Jenny wanted Alyssa to stay over another night so they could go to the movies. I just dropped by the house to get the bathing suit and some clothes. Candy husband, Candy's husband, Pat, was watching his wife as she was talking to Alan. He noticed the tension in her voice. After a few more phone calls, Alan grew more concerned and stayed on the phone with his friends to receive uptapes as they investigated further into Betty's potential disappearance. At home, both cars were in the garage and the lights were on, making it all the more strange that Betty wouldn't answer. Several hours after Alan had first suspected something was wrong, his search party would soon come up on a site of pure horror. So this is the marker where I'm going to tell you guys if you are eating, I would not. This is going to get very <laughs> gross very fast. So just, I would not be eating when I'm listening to this. Okay. From the door of the second bedroom, the hacking whale of an abandoned baby and the simultaneous exclamation of oh my god the baby bethany was in her crib half sitting half lying her legs folded under her her face blotching red her head tangled her hair tangled and dirty her skin was stained with her own excrement her poignantly hoarse cry curdled crying curdled their blood she had obviously been there a long time Richard quickly gathered up the baby, cradling her head against his shoulder. He hurried back to his house to call the police. Without exception, each man who saw the lifeless body of Betty Gore on the night of June 13th reflexively averted their eyes. Even those who already knew what lay beyond the utility room were never bold enough to look more than a moment before closing the door. It was a small room, no more than 12 feet long by 6 feet wide, made smaller by the presence of a washer, a dryer, a freezer, and a small cabinet, where Betty had kept toys and knickknacks. In one corner was a brand new toy wagon and a child's training toilet. Closer to the center of the room, where the freezer stood against one wall, were two dog dishes and a bruised book of Mother Goose nursery rhymes. The book had a white cover, which stood out in sharp relief, because in the harsh overhead light that glared off the harvest gold linoleum, it was one of the few objects in the room not coated in blood. 
Her left arm was the first thing they noticed after opening the door. It lay in a pool of blood and fluid so thick that the arm appeared to be floating above linoleum. To get a look at her face, the men had to walk around the ocean of red and black to get closer. What they saw was even more upsetting. Her lips were parted, showing her front teeth, mouth fashioned into a half-grin. Her hair radiated in all directions, a tangled, soaked mess of glistening black, and Betty's left eye was wide open, staring down at the gaping black craters in her arm. As to her right eye, she appeared not to have one. The entire right half of her face was gone. Let me just repeat that. The entire right half of her face was gone. After the neighbors had found her body, the phone rang. And they obviously jumped because this is terrifying. And on the other line was Alan, who was soon given the devastating news. A few feet from Betty's head and half concealed under the freezer was a heavy wooden handle, three foot long axe. Devastated by the news, Alan called Candy, who was babys- who, who at the time, who was at the time set comfort in her. After some investigation, the police found a bloody put footprints in at the crime scene and the news spread quickly all over town they also had found a big red thumbprint on the freezer and then the police also found in the bathroom shower drain was blood and hair as to indicate that someone had taken a shower after committing this gruesome murder as soon as Candy had heard about the footprint, she set to work destroying the soles of her favorite sandals with a pair of garden shears. So, um, the police are trying to figure out who did this, and they find out that Betty, or Candy, I'm sorry, was the last one to see Betty alive. So, um, they quickly, she quickly came, became the main suspect, but they did decide that they did need physical evidence to be able to build a strong case with her. So they call her in on Sunday to give a, to do a polygraph test. And um, she comes in after mass in her Sunday best and gives a, you know, a, um, gives her events of what happened and they send her on the way. It wasn't until Alan told them because they initially interviewed him and he didn't say anything. He comes in and he says, I lied. I'm sorry. I was having an affair with Candy Montgomery my best friend's my friend's my wife's best friend so after the police hear this they decide okay betty didn't actually tell us that so once they find out this from alan they they're they realize that they have a main suspect so they said they tell at candy if you can come in that afternoon for a polygraph test and Candy goes to a lawyer, and the lawyer calls and says she will not be taking any a polygraph test. So the police then decide they need to test the big red foot, big red thumbprint they found on the freezer. And when they did, they matched Candy Montgomery's prints. So she was charged with murder, 
and soon was released on bail. Despite her potential involvement in the case, she had Candy did receive wholehearted support from the church, and she um, her she hired a defense attorney named Don Crowder, who she actually knew from church to help her present her case, and so to help Candy better remember the events that took place on June thirteenth, Don Crowder hired Dr. Fred Faison, a psychiatrist and clinical clinical hypnotist. Because in the 1980s, um, a lot of some police were actually using hypnotists to figure out what was going on during certain events because people were not remembering. So this is generally where the hypnotism comes in, and this is what's going to help them. Katie Montgomery and her lawyer defense. After a few hypnosis hypno, hip, sessions. Dr. Facing determined that Candy was suffering from deep-rooted childhood trauma that had triggered immense rage within her as an adult. When I snap my fingers, you will begin re-experiencing and relating that time to me as you go through it. One, two, three. Dr. Facing snapped his fingers loudly. Begin. What's happening, Candy? She said nothing. Her face wore a worried expression. Begin. What's happening, Candy? She said nothing again, and her face wore a worried expression. What's happening, Candy? You can tell me. What's that you're feeling, Candy? Hate. Okay, you hate her. Express your feelings stronger and stronger. Candy started to whimper. You hate her? Repeated Faison. I hate her. You hate her? You hate her. Say it out loud. I hate her. Louder. When I count to three, I want you to back up in time again, Candy. I want you to go back in time to where she's shoving you. You're in the utility room and she shoves you. Just relax. One, two, three. Candy whimpered and moaned softly. What is happening? Go through it. The feeling is extremely, extraordinarily strong. One, two, three. She's pushing you. What's she going to do? What's happening? Tell me. What is it to me? She tried saying something. What? Louder. I won't let her hit me again. I don't want him. She can't do this to me. The feelings are getting stronger, said Faison. Stronger. Faison time regressed her yet again, this time asking her to go back to the first time you ever got that mad. Do you recall ever being that mad before, he asked. Do you recall it? No response. How old are you, Candy? Four. Four. Tell me about it. What made you so mad? I lost it. What did you lose? Race. You lost the race? To Johnny. Do you like Johnny? He beat me. What did he say when he beat you? No answer. How did you feel? Mad. Furious. What are you going to do? I'll break it. Break what? The jar. So what did you do? I broke it. How did you break it? What happened? I threw it against the pump. Are you scared? Candy nodded. My mother took me to the hospital. What does your mother say? Shh. Did what? Shh. What did she say? Shh. When I count to three, your feelings will be stronger and stronger. One, two, three. What are you seeing? I'm afraid. What are you afraid of? Hurts. 
I'm afraid. What are you afraid of? Are you afraid of being punished for your anger? Is that what you're afraid of? It hurts. Your head hurts? Where does it hurt? I'm scared. I want to scream. How did you feel when she said, shh? I'm afraid I'm going to kick and scream. When I count to three, you're going to kick and scream all you want to. One, I can't. Yes, you can. Two, three, kick and scream all you want to. As soon as he stopped, Mason thought it would be wise to start bringing her out of the trance. It would take more interviews to sort out the details. But in his mind, he had done what Don Croyder asked him to do. He had to found the source of Candy Montgomery's rage. So in October 1980, the defense's opening statement was that Candy did commit the murder, but it was self-defense. And once the court heard this, everyone gasped. Okay, so now we're going to get dip, dip deep into what Candy said, Candy Montgomery said happened that day. So on June 13th, Betty was not expect wasn't expecting Candy until noon that day. So when she responded to the polite knock that morning, she looked annoyed. No doubt she had just she had just sat down for the rest first time that day after putting Bethany into her crib for her mid-morning nap. She probably hurried to the door so the noise wouldn't wake the baby. Betty had a half-finished half cup of coffee, and from behind came the muffled sounds of a Phil Donahue show. Since she hadn't intended to go out that day, she was dressed for housework. She opened the front door halfway and peered out. Betty, I have a special, special favor to ask you. Candy was not long on salutations, but no one minded her abruptness. The friendliness in her eyes and her smile was greeting enough. The girls want Alyssa to go see the movie with us tonight, and I told them if that's okay with you. It's okay with me, and I'll be happy to take Lissa to her swimming lessons to save you the extra trip. That's okay, Betty said. Come on in. I thought it would be, said Candy. And just so I ran down from ran down from Bible school to get Alyssa's swimsuit. The two women talked into the walks into the living room, which was dominated by a large playpen in the middle of the floor, with toys and children's books strewn around it. Betty switched off the TV and went to the kitchen. Want some coffee? No, thanks. Candy sat next to the sewing machine, where she noticed that Betty was making something out of yellow cloth. Betty came back and sat on the other side of the small table. She seemed tense as though she were anxious for Candy to leave. So where's Bethany? Candy asked. Bethany got up very early today, and she just went back to bed. Candy, if you're going to take a lesson to her swimming lesson, remember that she doesn't like you to put her face underwater, Betty said. So when she does, put her face under. Be sure to give her peppermints afterwards. That's the reward we use. Betty was loosening up a little, as though the small talk was a welcome interruption to the morning chores. They chatted a while, then Candy glanced at her watch. Well, it's getting late, and I have some errands to run. You want me to get want me to get Alyssa's suit? Betty <coughs> didn't stir from her chair. Her hair was blank. Her eyes were unfocused. Candy, are you having an affair with Alan? Betty squinted and a silliness crept into her tone. But you did, didn't you? Yes, but it was a long time ago. Didn't Alan, did Alan tell you? Wait a minute, Betty said. 
She rose abruptly from her chair and walked through the open door of the utility room and out of sight. Candy wondered how recently Betty had found out. Candy also realized with a quiet panic that she had nothing to say to her. After a few seconds, Betty reappeared in the doorway, her face tense. She was clutching the carved wooden handle of a three-foot axe, the kind used for chopping heavy firewood. Her stance, oddly enough, was very threatening, since she held the axe clum clumsily away from her body. The blade pointed at the floor. Candy stood up but didn't move from the chair. Betty? Well, don't see him again. Well, under the circumstances, I think I'll just bring Alyssa home and drop her right off after Bible school. No, I don't want to see you anymore. Just keep Alyssa and take her to the movie, because I don't want to look at you again. Bring her home tomorrow. Betty laid the axe against the wall just inside the living room and walked past Candy into the middle of the living room. I'll get a towel from the bathroom and you get Alyssa's suit off the washer. All Candy wanted to do was get out of the house because she suddenly had a sick feeling in the pit of her stomach. As she took the swimsuit off the washer, Betty reappeared behind her. Don't forget Alyssa's peppermints. The two women at the utility room door and Betty handed the cow to Candy. That's okay. When Candy looked up at last, Betty was staring at her, but her expression was no longer one of rage. Her face was full of pain. Both women hesitated as though something important would be settled by the tone of the parting. Reflexively, Candy placed her hand on Betty's arm. When she spoke, her voice dripped with pity. Oh, Betty, I am so sorry. All at once, Betty's rage erupted. She flung a hand from her arm and shoved Candy backward into the utility room. Betty grabbed the axe resting by the door and rushed in after her, holding it like a weapon, diagonally across her chest. The blade was pointed at the floor. You can't have him, Betty screamed, crowding Candy. You can't have him. I'm going to have a baby and you can't have him this time. Betty, don't, said Candy, putting her arms on the axe as Betty moved in. This is stupid. I don't want Alan. For a moment, neither woman moved. They gripped the axe firmly, their eyes locked. Then Betty began to jerk the axe, trying to control it. Betty, don't do this. Please stop. I've got to kill you, Betty spoke. As they grappled for control, Betty wrenched the axe violently and jerked it upward. The flat side of the blade slapped against the side of Candy's bobbing head. Betty, what are you doing? Candy stepped backward, further into the utility room, and grabbed her head with her hand. Betty, stop! Candy looked at her hand. It was streaked with blood. Then she looked back at Betty and saw her raising the axe blade over her head almost to the eight-foot ceiling as though to smash her with a single powerful blow. Candy screams at the top of her lungs. A high-pitched pleading sound and jumped sideways into a cabinet, spilling books and knickknacks onto the floor. Betty was between Candy and both exits. The axe missed her entirely and landed harmlessly on the linoleum. The blade made a dull thud, bounced once, and sliced a gash into Candy's toe. Just as it did, Candy grabbed the blade, wrapping her fingers around the thick, heavy metal. Her pleading now turned to anger. She said no more, and she said no more. The exaggerated blow and the drawing of blood unloosed the surging fury of both women. As soon as Candy grabbed the blade, Betty started shoving and jerking the handle. But Candy held on tightly, and the struggle degenerated into a wrestling match. Betty thrust and jabbed the axe in Candy's body, kicked at her legs, kneed her in the thighs. Candy responded by trying to jerk the handle out of Betty's hands. From a distance, nonsensically, came the frenzied, high-pitched barking of dogs. Betty moved her hand up the handle, trying to get leverage. Finally, she bit Candy on the knuckle. With her head bent, Betty was off balance, and Candy shoved the axe against Betty's body with all her might. 
Betty reeled backwards and fell against the door of the freezer, her feet slipping a little on the linoleum. Candy didn't hesitate. As Betty struggled to regain her balance, her body facing away, Candy brought the axe up with both hands and brought the blade down on the back of Betty's head. The blood resounded with a hollow pop, like a cork coming out of a wine bottle, and the blood gushed across the back of Betty's head. Candy dropped the axe, jumped away from Betty, and felt time shift into slow motion. Betty began to slump to the floor, blood pouring out of her skull, but she continued to struggle to her feet. Terrified by the blood and the certainty that she had just killed her, Candy bolted for the living room door, but an eternity seemed to pass as she rode to reach it. She finally put her hand on the knob, started to pull, and Betty slammed her body against the floor. Candy looked up and saw blood spreading across the side of Betty's face. Betty picked up the X again like some nightmarish version of corpse that stalked its killer. Tears spurted from Candy's eyes. The barking of dogs, wolfish and primitive, grew louder. Let me go, Betty. Please let me go. I can't. Candy grabbed the axe again, and the woman began a macabre dance around the utility room, once again jabbing and pushing with the axe that hung between them. Betty's head dripped blood until the linoleum was slick with crimson. They circled endlessly, one losing a grip, then regaining it before she could be shoved away. At one point, when Betty slept, bumped against the freezer again, Candy removed a hand from the axe and grabbed the knob of the door to the garage. She pulled the door open a few inches, but Betty managed to shove her away, slam it shut, and push in the lock on the knob. They kicked each other so they jockeyed as they jockeyed for position. Their shoes squeaked on the road's sticky floor, and above the steady electrical hum of the washing machine, they grunted and breathed heavily. Betty grabbed Candy's hair with one hand. Then Candy slipped on the blood and went down hard, directly in front of the freezer. As she did, Betty tried to raise the axe, but growing weak from the loss of blood, couldn't get it up in time. Candy tackled her by one leg, and Betty sprawled forward almost on top of her. By the time they were upright again, the axe was between them, and they fought over it from sitting positions. Candy shoved Betty hard, jumped to her feet, lunged at the garage door, but the knob wouldn't turn. She pivoted as Betty moved towards her. Betty, don't. Please let me go. I don't want him. I don't want him. Betty's eyes flared, but her reply was eerily restrained. Placing one finger to her lips... And gripping the axe with her other hand, she breathed from somewhere deep in her throat. Shh. The susurration echoed through Kenny's subconscious like a psychic alarm. She grabbed the axe and used it aggressively, pushing the handle into Betty's against Betty's legs. Kenny jerked the axe and then leaned backward with all her might, wrapping both hands around the belly. The handle was covered with blood, but when Betty tried to pull just as hard as though in a tug of war, her hand slipped off and she plunged backward into the room. She wouldn't stay down, though. She lunged toward Candy, but Candy had time to raise the axe and bring it down with all her general fluid strength she could gather. There was no pity or remorse or conscience now. Candy destroyed Betty out of pure, unadulterated hate, anger over what this woman had done to her. Rage that now her life might be changed because of this stupid woman. Candy stopped at the point of utter exhaustion. There were all, 41 chop wounds. 40 of them had occurred while Betty Gore's heart was still beating. After the attack on Betty, Candy goes into the bathroom and washes off all the blood while leaving Bethany in her crib to scrape. 
The prosecutor, Tom O'Connell, asked Candy to repeat her account of what happened in the utility room, but with much less detail. She didn't hesitate, and there were no contraindications. She even added small details like the location of peppermint candies in a glass bowl on a shelf next to the fireplace. O'Connell's questions wandered from place to place, from the utility room to a friend's divorce and back to the cover-ups. He emphasized that an 11-month-old baby had been left all alone by this woman who prided herself on her motherhood. He pointed out Candy's repeated lies to her friends, and then abruptly he stopped. Candy's testimony ended on a Friday. The following Wednesday, in closing arguments, District Attorney Tom O'Connell argued there were several times when Miss Montgomery could have fled the Gore home rather than bludgeon Miss Gore with the axe. He also claimed Miss Montgomery struck Betty Gore 41 times than was necessary to defend herself. The jury had reached a verdict that same afternoon. Not guilty. The jury believed that Candace Montgomery was acting in self-defense when she killed the wife of a former lover with 41 axe blows. But some citizens screamed, murderer, murderer, at the 30-year-old housewife as she fled the courthouse under guard. As far as I'm concerned, justice will be served. She has to live with it, said Bob, Palm Bob Pomeroy of Norwich, Kansas, the victim's father. I wouldn't say I was happy with the verdict. We don't know what happened, and we'll never know what happened. Pomeroy discounted Ms. Montgomery's testimony that she was defending herself. After Miss Gore confronted her about an affair with Miss Gore's husband, Allen then produced an axe. One spectator, however, wasn't surprised by the verdict, which took the jury little more than three hours to reach. Doris Howard of Denton County said that she could understand the jury's thinking because the prosecution did a poor job of presenting its case. So, what happened to both families after this horrible crime? Um... Well, it's, from what I found out, Alan Gore quickly remarried a woman uh, four months later after this verdict was reached. So a lot of his, there's actually Betty's family that figure he actually had something to do with it. And this was a reason why. Right. Um, um, Candy and Pat, at, Candy Pat Montgomery got a divorce. She was essentially run out of town and she now lives in Georgia and... Kind of weird. She got a degree in counseling. Um, the thing is, I couldn't find anything about what happened to Pat, Candy's husband, or what happened to both kids of their families. So hopefully the kids, um, even though this was traumatizing for both of them, especially Betty Gore's kids, hopefully they're living semi, semi-normal lives, at least I guess they can. And I want to say the true victims of this case are going to be Betty Gore and her children, her two children, and Candy Montgomery's two children, of course. Because Betty's children, they lost a mother that in a hole that can't ever be filled. And Candy's children, unfortunately, probably wouldn't know, don't really know who to believe. Do they believe that their mom did act in self-defense and killed? Um, probably their close friend's, close friend's mother 41 times with an axe. And did she get away with murder or... Did she get away with murder? So who knows? And also Betty Gore, who was who from all accounts seemed like a very loving mother, and she was a really seemed like she was a really nice teacher and everything. She loved kids, so it's really sad this case happened.
Um, but they're all, the thing is, there are only two people who know what happened that day. Candy Montgomery and Betty Gore. And unfortunately, Betty Gore died. And who knows if this is actually what happened on that day of June 13th. So, okay. I just want to let everyone know that's pretty much the end of this episode. So, um, if you guys have any questions or anything or any comments about this episode, you know you can always... If you subscribe to the Instagram crime underscore can, you guys can send me some there. And I hope you guys have a great week. Bye. Sorry, again. Okay. On the night of August 31st, 1986, 65-year-old William Delton Frost and his 60-year-old invalid wife, Callie, were fatally shot in their two-room home in Downsville, Louisiana. The front door had been smashed in, and police believed the motive was robbery because... Frost in trust banks and was believed to keep cash, his cash in a suitcase in the home. The shots appeared to have been fired through a window, and their bodies were discovered two days later. So unfortunately, I couldn't find really any other information on this murder. That was all I could find. Um, so there wasn't a whole lot. They just talked about the two men that were convicted of it. So the police did not get any leads until six weeks after the murders mm. on October 12th, 1986. Janet Burrell told police that she had met with her ex-husband Albert on the night of the crime and that he had $2,700 in $100 bills and blood on his boots. She said he admitted firing the shots and that she saw Frost Waltz on the front seat of his car. And then Burrell was arrested within the hour. So they're wondering if he wasn't working alone, if he had another person with him as like lookout or something so um in walks um kenneth st Clair with a story to tell according to him he had come to louisiana with michael graham to find construction work st Clair told police that on the night of the crime graham and burrell left the trailer where graham was living near st Clair about 8 30 p.m and returned later when graham had returned he had blood on him but um but also according to the according to the source I use, um Graham was in Union Parish jail on forgery charges for allegedly stealing the checkbook of a woman who had hired him and St. Clair. It didn't make any sense mumbled it. I have to go back. Honestly. So, at the time Graham was in the Union Parish jail on forgery charges for allegedly stealing the checkbook of a woman who had hired him in St. Clair to do some work and then cashing about $300 worth of checks. So while St. Clair is telling this to the police, this is where Michael, the other guy who, uh, who soon becomes unfortunately involved in this predicament, is staying at right now. So on October 24th, 1986, Graham and Burrell each were indicted on two counts of murder. So, two days later, Graham's cellmate, Olin Wayne Brantley, who's told authorities that Graham had admitted he and Burrell committed the crime and that Burrell had fired the fatal shots. So, Graham went on trial on March 20th, 1987 in the Union Parish Courthouse. The state's key witnesses were Janet Burrell and Brantley. So, Albert Burrell's ex-wife and Brantley, his cellmate. Although police reports to that Frost's wallet was recovered at his home, 
A deputy testified that he believed Burrell had returned to the Frost home and put the wallet back because he suspected his wife had seen it the night they met. And here's another witness that comes forward. Another witness, 14-year-old Amy Opiel, O-P-I-E-L, who had spent the night of the crime with the St. Clair family, testified that she saw Graham and Burrell sitting on the couch in the trailer with a suitcase and stacks of money. So that was all the information they needed, and Graham was convicted on March 22nd, 1987, and sentenced to death. Burrell went on trial in August 1987 and was convicted and sentenced to death based on virtually the same evidence presented in the Graham's trial. So they had two separate trials. So five months later, after Burrell was convicted and he's put on death row, his ex-wife, Janet, who by then was remarried to Burrell's brother, James, <laughs> just wait, it gets weird, Mom, recanted her testimony. She said she lied because she wanted to get custody of their child, who had been, which had been awarded to Albert Burrell prior to the murders. So the Louisiana Supreme Court granted Albert a hearing, but at that hearing on July 6, 1988, Janet changed her testimony back to original story. That essentially she saw, you know, the $275,000 in $100 bills and blood on his, on his boots. The motion for a new trial was denied, and eventually his conviction and death sentence were upheld by the state Supreme Court, which is the highest but not, but the U.S. Supreme Court is the highest. So meanwhile, Graham's case had been sent back for a hearing on a motion for a new trial, but his lawyers got extension after extension as they began to uncover new evidence. By 1995, Janet Burrell had recanted her testimony a second time. Burrell, no, this is the second time. Because the first time she, she said he did, then she recanted. She it. went back to her original story. Oh, that's right. This is the fourth time. This is the this is the sec. This is technically the second time she recants her testimony again. Yeah, it's it's like. The four to me. She said he did, then she did because of the child. On the child. No, she goes husband. back. She re. She she. Then she changed it. Then she does it again. No, no, no. So she, the first testimony, she said, "I saw him count money, and he yeah. had on his boots." Then she's like, "Wait, no, that doesn't happen. This is when." The first time she recants and says, I just said that because I want custody yeah, of our child. And when they go to trial is when she goes back to original. She doesn't recant. Okay. They, from the information I got, said she did not. This is the second time. Burrell was facing an execution date in August 1996. So 17 days away from death, Burrell's lawyer obtained a stay. Also, the other witness who was, I think, a, a young girl who was staying with the St. Clair said she recanted her testimony as well in 1998, claiming she was pressured to lie and that it was St. Clair she saw with blood on his clothes and counting money. So it's just like, who actually saw what on this? Who, who actually saw what? So Graham finally had a hearing in 2000 where lawyers presented the recantations as well as the evidence that pros prosecutors had failed to turn over exculpatory mm -hmm. and impeachment evidence. So exculpatory is essentially evidence that if you're def the defense, defense attorney should get, it proves that their clients are innocent. Mm -hmm. 
And also, they their defense attorneys were like, um, Brantley, so the original cellmates, had cut a deal with prosecutors on a pending charge and that he was taking medication to control, to control mood swings. And unfortunately, I couldn't find what the other charges were. So the facts of the case are this. Albert Ronnie Burrell and Michael Ray Graham each spent more than 14 years on death row at the Louisiana State Penitentiary in Angola after having been convicted of the 1986 double murder of William and Callie Frost. No physical evidence of any nature has ever been obtained which implicates or exonerates Burrell, Graham, or any other persons for these, mur for these murders, which is really sad in my opinion as well. They were convicted on circumstantial evidence alone. The investigation that led to the arrest were full of mistakes, and most of the testimony that led to convictions were later recanted or discredited. The facts of this matter have been considered by both state and federal courts. So here is the most recent, the 2000, March, two, March 3rd, 2000 is when they got the most recent trial. So the trial court granted a motion for a new trial filed on behalf of Graham. He alleged that the state had withheld significant exculpatory evidence and impeachment evidence bearing on the credibility of its main witnesses. In granting a new trial to Graham, the trial court found that the jury had been able to consider the evidence that had been withheld. The outcome of the trial likely would have changed. The trial court recited 45 reasons that the burden had been met. They also granted the joint motion for a new trial filed by Burrell, Burrell and the state, vacating the judgment of the guilt and the sentence of death. After new trials were granted, the Louisiana Department of Justice conducted a thorough investigation of all known possible independent sources of credible information. Uh, also at the request of trial court, reasons for this dismissal were also filed by the Attorney General citing the complete lack of credible evidence in this matter. So shortly thereafter, they were released from Louisiana State Penitentiary, and their charges have never been reinstated against these two, and unfortunately, like I said, no one else has been charged with the Frost murders. Uh, so... They get out, and um, it's kind of sad, but kind of funny. Um, Burrell was talking about how when he got out, he got a denim jacket that was four sizes too big, and he left with his sister, which I thought was really sweet. And I couldn't really find anything on Graham what happened after he got out of prison. But it doesn't end there, because they usually, if you've been wrongly convicted, you can get compensation. Yeah. Louisiana said, no, it doesn't happen that way. So then they're like, okay, we'll go to trial. So, compensation for wrongful conviction and imprisonment were filed on August 28, 2008. So, in August, so uh, six years later is when the trial gets smoke going. So, on August 6, 2014, after a four-day trial, a judgment and written reasons were issued denying compensation. They said, okay, we'll appeal it again. Burrell and Graham alleged the trial court failed to follow the statutory requirements regarding procedure, misapplied the burden of proof, and were not able to find that they met burden of proof. So this is, this is actually interesting, too. So in 2005, the Louisiana legislature enacted a LARS, which is the Louisiana Revised Statute, um, Title 15. I won't go into like any of the other numbers, but that's essentially what it is. To create a fund to compensate those who are wrongly convicted and in prison 
and an application process to obtain compensation upon proof of factual innocence. But then you have to actually prove your innocence, and that's not easy at all. So the statuette was amended in 2007 to change the procedure for filing a petition. Um, and, then it's, and then it says, what are the procedural requirements? It says, Burrell and Graham contend the trial court failed to follow the statutory requirements by not settling the matter for trial within 45 days after the filing of the answer by the states. Further, Burrell and Graham claim they pursued a hearing date to no avail and were prejudiced greatly by this failure of the trial court to set a hearing date because two witnesses died before the trial, and I couldn't find out who else who the two witnesses were. The state argues that Burrell and Graham have weighed the right to assert this issue as an error because they never filed an, ex an objection for the failure to set the trial within the specified time period. The issue here is whether the statuette requires the court to set the trial date on its own initiative or if a request must be made by a party. So what does the actual, the Louisiana RS or vice statuette provide? It provides the attorney general shall represent the state of Louisiana in these proceedings the court shall serve a copy of any petition filed pursuant to this section upon the attorney general and the district attorney of the parish in which the conviction was obtained and upon the court that vacated or reversed the petitioner's conviction or upon the pardon board if the conviction was vacated through executive clemency within 15 days of receiving such petition. But unfortunately, they were, it was, it was 2000 when they were, when they said, when it was, when they're, what I'm trying to say, when their um, sense was vacated, and then it was like 14 years later when they were able to get a new trial for clemency and stuff. So they said, so then two petitions were filed on this, in this matter on August 28, 2008, one on behalf of Burrell and the other on behalf of Graham. On September 18, 2008, the Center for Equal Justice wrote a letter to the clerk of the court requesting service on the proper parties as defined by the statuette and noticing that it did not initially attach services copies to the petitions filed a month previous. So the Louisiana Attorney General's office made written requests for extensions of time on November 14th and December 8, 2008, which were granted. Due to a conflict of interest, the Louisiana Attorney General's office was unable to represent the state and appointed Jerry Jones, the DA for the 4th Judicial District, to do so shortly before December. Before the expiration of the second extension, Jones filed a motion for extension of time due to the late appointment, which was granted. The state timely filed an answer on January 21, 2009. No other pleadings were filed in this matter until June 26, 2012, when Burrell and Graham filed a motion to consolidate the matter's motion for summary judgment. And then it talks about how um, additional counsel was enrolled on behalf of them a month later, um, and then on October 29, 2012, after the denial of their motion for summary judgment, 
Burrell, and Graham filed a motion to set the case for trial and requested a telephone conference to establish a date. So on December 20th, 2012, after the pretrial conference, an order was issued outlining the time frame for discovery and reserving five days for trial beginning on September 23rd, 2013. Um, let me see. I had where I just lost where I was. Sorry. Um, so essentially they were, the trial court reviewed over 6,000 pages of evidence mm -hmm. and her testimony of witnesses over a four day bench trial. So the difference between a bench trial and a jury trial is bench. You just have three judges mm -hmm. and it's considered less prejudicial depending on the matter in jury trials, you know, have a jury of your peers. So ultimately the trial court was unable to conclude they Burrell and Graham demonstrated factual innocence by clear and convincing evidence. Um, they said they had a psycho psychological evaluation of Burrell like conducted post conviction, like, you know, to be able to prove, you know, he did suffer and there was um, reasonable money he should have received. He um, suffered severe cognitive limitation limitation um, and then they talk about also how the statement made by the the little girl, Amy Opal, uh, she was coerced during an interview with the St. A group interview with the St. Clair family, which made, in my opinion, no sense. Why would you interview her originally during this time? Um, and then she said, Amy Opal's later affidavit stated that she did not see blood on Graham as previously purported, but it had been Kenneth St. Clair who had blood on him. She also stated that it was Kenneth St. Clair. She saw counting a lot of money and sitting on the sofa with a man in glasses. So at trial, the state prevented e presented evidence which showed that Burrell matched the description of the man with glasses and that Burrell had been driving Graham and St. Kenneth St. Clair around on the day of the murders. So although they were able to successfully impeach the witnesses against him uh, and show that the investigation into the Frost murders were slipshod and poorly executed, the fact remains evidence to support their factual evidence is lacking. They have proved that the state did not turn over all the evidence. Counsel at the criminal trial was ineffective and they are entitled to a new trial based upon these facts. They requested the trial court to find them factually innocent and entitled to compensation for wrongful conviction based on the same evidence and facts upon which the judgment for new trial was granted. So after, you know, they debate all this, they go back and debate to their corners and they debate this. They said, um, where was, where is, sorry, I lost my explanation slide. Ultimately, to receive compensation for wrongful conviction and imprisonment requires presentation of some sort of compelling evidence, which unfortunately in the judge's mind was their downfall. They said Burrell and Graham were unable to present any credible, new credible evidence, such as trustworthy eyewitness accounts or critical physical evidence that would lead a reasonable person to believe it highly probable that they are factually innocent of these murders. Mm -hmm. So they found no manifest error in the judgment of the trial court. So, um, so they basically said, you do not get any compensation. There's no, you have not been able to prove no new evidence. You can't prove that there's any eyewitnesses. And unfortunately two of them died before this, this new trial. So like, you don't get no money, which is really sad because they were 
Albert Burrell was 17 days from being executed. Hmm. And they were on death row for 14 years. So where is Albert today? So he currently lives in Center, Texas, and since his release has been active in the movement against the death penalty with other exonerated former death row prisoners. He talks, he attends, he attends events called Texas Memorial Network, which I've never heard of. Um, unfortunately, I couldn't really find any Michael Graham, but I only was able to find on Albert, Albert Burrell, which I thought was interesting that he's still, um, he doesn't really have any sites. He just gives talks and stuff. I thought you said Texas something, Texas Morale. He lives in Center, Texas. No, down further. You said somewhere, Texas Morale or something. Oh, he include, he tends vents called through the Texas Moratorium Network, which oh, I I will. So I thought this case was really interesting because I'd never heard of it, but it's really sad that they're like, even though you were on death row because your ex-wife decided uh, she she was upset of custody, I'm going to ruin your life. And this other guy's like, I'm going to ruin this other guy's life because for some reason he thought, who well, knows? He got, he got better deal in jail. Yeah, unfortunately. I don't know what the pending charges is. It's like, I'm going to mess your life up for 14 years. So. Did she marry the brother? Yeah, she was remarried to his brother, which makes even more, like, more suspicious. But yeah, that's the, and I named the, I titled this episode, um, uh, no compensation for 14 years instead of Albert Burrell. How about no compensation for, what you, how would you call it again, for incarceration? For, incar for, for, for 14, for incarceration for 14 years, yeah. which I was like, that's incredibly tragic that you were like, you can't prove anything. Even though your sentences were vacated, we're sorry, there's nothing, I no money. I tell some of the evidence they held back. Well, I couldn't find anything. Like, I could find... Exculpatory evidence. I couldn't find anything. Like, on this murder, what the... I couldn't find nothing. And to get police reports, you have to actually physically talk to the police station, the district and stuff. And you have... Okay. And if you want to go to a site, you have to be a lawyer. And I'm not a lawyer. And I don't know which court I would... Which police, said, police office station I would talk to you about this so yeah it's like it's also sad that um but yeah i couldn't really find anything on the murder of um the frost to the frost family or anything like that so i could i could only find on either exonerations and that was it and the i thought it was interesting about the whole trial so oh it was really sad and their case still hasn't been solved so I thought that was an interesting case, and that has been... A lot, a lot of times it comes up again, the, the person, and it does come up eventually, who did it. What yep. can be hidden can be revealed. Yep. Well, that was everything. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And um, you guys have a, great, have a great week. See you next week on um, Crime Candy. Bye. Sorry, Kim. Okay. On the night of August 31st, 1986, 65-year-old William Delton Frost and his 60-year-old invalid wife, Callie, were fatally shot in their two-room home in Downsville, Louisiana. The front door had been smashed in, and police believed the motive was robbery because Frost didn't trust banks and was believed to keep cash, his cash in a suitcase in the home. The shots appeared to have been fired through a window, and their bodies were discovered two days later. 
So unfortunately, I couldn't find really any other information on this murder. That was all I could find. Um, so there wasn't a whole lot. They just talked about the two men that were convicted of it. So the police did not get any leads until six weeks after the murders on October 12, 1986. Janet Burrell told police that she had met with her ex-husband, Albert, on the night of the crime and that he had $2,700 in $100 bills and blood on his boots. She said he admitted firing the shots and that she saw Frost Waltz on the front seat of his car. And then Burrell was arrested within the hour. So they're wondering if he wasn't working alone, if he had another person with him as like lookout or something. So um, in walks um, Kenneth St. Clair with a story to tell. According to him, he had come to Louisiana with Michael Graham to find construction work. St. Clair told police that on the night of the crime, Graham and Burrell left the trailer where Graham was living near St. Clair about 8.30 p.m. and returned later. When Graham had returned, he had blood on him. But, um, but also according to the According to the source I use, um, Graham was in Union Parish Jail on forgery charges for allegedly stealing the checkbook of a woman who had hired him and St. Clair. It didn't make any sense. Mumbled it. I have to go back. Honestly. So, at the time, Graham was in the Union Parish Jail on forgery charges for allegedly stealing the checkbook of a woman who had hired him and St. Clair to do some work and then cashing about $300 worth of checks. So while Sinclair is telling this to the police, this is where Michael, the other guy who, uh, who soon becomes unfortunately involved in this predicament, is staying at right now. So on October 24th, 1986, Graham and Burrell each were indicted on two counts of murder. So two days later, Graham's cellmate, Olin Wayne Brantling, who's told authorities that Graham had admitted he and Burrell committed the crime and that Burrell had fired the fatal shots. So Graham went on trial on March 20th, 1987 in the Union Parish Courthouse. The state's key witnesses were Janet Burrell and Brantley. So Albert Burrell's ex-wife and Brantley, his cellmate. Although police reports said that Frost's wallet was recovered at his home, a deputy testified that he believed Burrell had returned to the Frost home and put the wallet back because he suspected his wife had seen it the night they met. And here's another witness that comes forward. Another witness, 14-year-old Amy Opiel, O-P-I-E-L, who had spent the night of the crime with the St. Clair family, testified that she saw Graham and Burrell sitting on the couch in the trailer with a suitcase and stacks of money. So that was all the information they needed, and Graham was convicted on March 22, 1987, and sentenced to death. Burrell went on trial in August 1987 and was convicted and sentenced to death based on virtually the same evidence presented in the Graham's trial. So they had two separate trials. So, five months later, after Burrell was convicted and he's put on death row, his ex-wife, Janet, who by then was remarried to Burrell's brother, James, just wait, it gets weird, Mom, recanted her testimony. She said she lied because she wanted to get custody of their child. 
who had been which had been awarded to Albert Burrell prior to the murders. So the Louisiana Supreme Court granted Albert a hearing, but at that hearing on July 6, 1988, Janet changed her testimony back to original story. That essentially she saw, you know, the 275,000 in $100 bills and blood on his on his boots. The motion for a new trial was denied and eventually his conviction and death sentence were upheld by the state Supreme Court, which is the highest but not, but the U.S. Supreme Court is the highest. So meanwhile, Graham's case had been sent back for a hearing on a motion for a new trial, but his lawyers got extension after extension as they began to uncover new evidence. By 1995, Janet Burrell had recanted her testimony a second time. Burrell, no, this is the second time. Because the first time she, she said he did, then she recanted. She went back to her original story. Oh, that's right. This is the fourth time. This is the this is the sec. This is technically the second time she recants her testimony again. Yeah, it's it's like. The four to me. She said he did, then she didn't because of the child. On the child. No, she goes husband. back. She re. She she. Then she changed she, it. And then she doesn't. No, no, no. So she the first testimony she said I saw him count money and he yeah. had one of his boots. Then she's like, wait, no, that doesn't happen. This is when. The first time she recants and says, I just said that because I want custody yeah, of our child. And when they go to trial is when she goes back to original. She doesn't recant. Okay. They, from the information I got, said she did not. This is the second time. Burrell was facing an execution date in August 1996. So 17 days away from death, Burrell's lawyer obtained a stay. Also, the other witness who was, I think, a, a young girl who was staying with the St. Clair's said she recanted her testimony as well in 1998, claiming she was pressured to lie and that it was St. Clair she saw with blood on his clothes and counting money. So it's just like, who actually saw what on this? Who, who actually saw what? So Graham finally had a hearing in 2000 where lawyers presented the recantations as well as the evidence that pros prosecutors had failed to turn over exculpatory mm -hmm. and impeachment evidence. So exculpatory is essentially evidence that if you're def the defense, defense attorney should get, it proves that their clients are innocent. Mm -hmm. And also they, their defense attorneys were like, um, Brantley, so the original cellmates, had cut a deal with prosecutors on a pending charge and that he was taking medication to control, to control mood swings. And unfortunately, I couldn't find what the other charges were. So the facts of the case are this. Albert Ronnie Burrell and Michael Ray Graham each spent more than 14 years on death row at the Louisiana State Penitentiary in Angola after having been convicted of the 1986 double murder of William and Callie Frost. No physical evidence of any nature has ever been obtained which implicates or exonerates Burrell, Graham, or any other persons for these, mur for these murders, which is really sad in my opinion as well. They were convicted on circumstantial evidence alone. The investigation that led to the arrest were full of mistakes, and most of the testimony that led to convictions were later recanted or discredited. The facts of this matter have been considered by both state and federal courts. So here is the most recent, the 2000, March, two, March 3rd, 2000 is when they got the most recent trial. 
So the trial court granted a motion for a new trial filed on behalf of Graham. He alleged that the state had withheld significant exculpatory evidence and impeachment evidence bearing on the credibility of its main witnesses. In granting a new trial to Graham, the trial court found that the jury had been able to consider the evidence that had been withheld. The outcome of the trial likely would have changed. The trial court recited 45 reasons that the burden had been met. They also granted the joint motion for new trial filed by Burrell, Burrell and the state, vacating the judgment of the guilt and the sentence of death. After new trials were granted, the Louisiana Department of Justice conducted a thorough investigation of all known possible independent sources of credible information. Uh, also at the request of trial court, reasons for this dismissal were also filed by the Attorney General citing the complete lack of credible evidence in this matter. So shortly thereafter, they were released from Louisiana State Penitentiary, and their charges have never been reinstated against these two. And unfortunately, like I said, no one else has been charged with the Frost murders. Uh, so they get out, and um, it's kind of sad but kind of funny. Um, Burrell was talking about how when he got out, he got a denim jacket that was four sizes too big, and he left with his sister, which I thought was really sweet. And I couldn't really find anything on Graham what happened after he got out of prison. But it doesn't end there, because they usually, if you've been wrongly convicted, you can get compensation. Yeah. Louisiana said, no, it doesn't happen that way. So then they're like, okay, we'll go to trial. So compensation for wrongful conviction and imprisonment were filed on August 28, 2008. So in August, so uh, six years later is when the trial gets smoke going. So on August 6, 2014, after a four-day trial, a judgment and written reasons were issued denying compensation. Mm. They said, okay, we'll appeal it again. Burrell and Graham alleged the trial court failed to follow the statutory requirements regarding procedure, misapplied the burden of proof, and were not able to find that they met burden of proof. So this is, this is actually interesting, too. So in 2005, the Louisiana legislature enacted a LARS, which is the Louisiana Revised Statute, um, Title 15. I won't go into like any of the other numbers, but that's essentially what it is. To create a fund to compensate those who are wrongly convicted and in prison and an application process to obtain compensation upon proof of factual innocence. But then you have to actually prove your innocence, and that's not easy at all. So the statuette was amended in 2007 to change the procedure for filing a petition. Um, and, then it's, and then it says, what are the procedural requirements? It says, Burrell and Graham contend the trial court failed to follow the statutory requirements by not settling the matter for trial within 45 days after the filing of the answer by the states. Further, Burrell and Graham claim they pursued a hearing date to no avail and were prejudiced greatly by this failure of the trial court to set a hearing date because two witnesses died before the trial, and I couldn't find out who else who the two witnesses were. The state argues that Burrell and Graham have weighed the right to assert this issue as an error because they never filed an, ex an objection for the failure to set the trial within this specified time period. 
The issue here is whether the statuette requires the court to set the trial date on its own initiative or if a request must be made by a party. So what does the actual, the Louisiana RS or vice statuette provide? It provides the attorney general shall represent the state of Louisiana in these proceedings the court shall serve a copy of any petition filed pursuant to this section upon the attorney general and the district attorney of the parish in which the conviction was obtained and upon the court that vacated or reversed the petitioner's conviction or upon the pardon board if the conviction was vacated through executive clemency within 15 days of receiving such petition. But unfortunately, they were, it, was, it was 2000 when they were when they said when it was when they're what I'm trying to say when their um sense was vacated and then it was like 14 years later when they were able to get a new trial for clemency and stuff so they said so then two petitions were filed on this in this matter on august 28 2008 one on behalf of burrell and the other on the half of graham on September 18, 2008, the Center for Equal Justice wrote a letter to the clerk of the court requesting service on the proper parties as defined by the statuette and noticing that it did not initially attach service copies to the petitions filed a month previous. So the Louisiana Attorney General's office made written requests for extensions of time on November 14th and December 8, 2008, which were granted. Due to a conflict of interest, the Louisiana Attorney General's office was unable to represent the state and appointed Jerry Jones, the DA for the 4th Judicial District, to do so shortly before December. Before the expiration of the second extension, Jones filed a motion for extension of time due to the late appointment, which was granted. The state timely filed an answer on January 21, 2009. No other pleadings were filed in this matter until June 26, 2012, when Burrell and Graham filed a motion to consolidate the matter's motion for summary judgment. And then it talks about how um, additional counsel was enrolled on behalf of them a month later. Um, and then on October 29, 2012, after the denial of their motion for summary judgment, Burrell and Graham filed a motion to set the case for trial and requested a telephone conference to establish a date. So on December 20, 2012, after the pretrial conference, an order was issued outlining the time frame for discovery and reserving five days for trial beginning on September 23, 2013. Um, let me see. I had where I just lost where I was. Sorry. Um, so essentially, they were the trial court reviewed over six thousand pages of evidence mm -hmm. and her testimony of witnesses over a four-day bench trial. So the difference between a bench trial and a jury trial is bench. You just have three judges, mm -hmm. and it's considered less prejudicial depending on the matter. In jury trials, you know, have a jury of your peers. So ultimately, the trial court was unable to conclude they, Burrell and Graham, demonstrated factual innocence by clear and convincing evidence. Um, they said they had a psycho psychological evaluation of Burrell, like conducted post conviction, like, you know, 
to be able to prove, you know, he did suffer and there was um, reasonable money he should have received. He um, suffered severe cognitive limitation. limitation. Um, and then they talk about also how the statement made by the, the little girl, Amy Opal, uh, she was coerced during an interview with the Saint, a group interview with the St. Clair family, which made, in my opinion, no sense. Why would you interview her originally during this time? Um, and then she said, Amy Opal's later affidavit stated that she did not see blood on Graham as previously purported, but it had been Kenneth St. Clair who had blood on him. She also stated that it was Kenneth St. Clair she saw counting a lot of money and sitting on the sofa with a man in glasses. So at trial, the state prevented e presented evidence which showed that Burrell matched the description of the man with glasses and that Burrell had been driving Graham and St. Kenneth St. Clair around on the day of the murders. So although they were able to successfully impeach the witnesses against him uh, and show that the investigation into the Frost murders were slipshod and poorly executed, the fact remains evidence to support their factual evidence is lacking. They have proved that the state did not turn over all the evidence. Counsel at the criminal trial was ineffective, and they are entitled to a new trial based upon these facts. They requested the trial court to find them factually innocent and entitled to compensation for wrongful conviction based on the same evidence and facts upon which the judgment for new trial was granted. So after, you know, they debate all this, they go back and debate to their corners, and they debate this. They said, um, what was, where is, sorry, I lost my explaining slide. Ultimately, to receive compensation for wrongful conviction and imprisonment requires presentation of some sort of compelling evidence, which unfortunately in the judge's mind was their downfall. They said Burrell and Graham were unable to present any credible, new credible evidence, such as trustworthy eyewitness accounts or critical physical evidence, that would lead a reasonable person to believe it highly probable that they are factually innocent of these murders. Mm -hmm. So they found no manifest error in the judgment of the trial court. So, um, so they basically said, you do not get any compensation. There's no, you have not been able to prove no new evidence. You can't prove that there's any eyewitnesses and unfortunately two of them died before this new trial. So like, you don't get no money. Which is really sad because they were, Albert Burrell was 17 days from being executed. Hmm. And they were on death row for 14 years. Hmm. So where is Albert today? <laughs> so he currently lives in Center, Texas. And since his release has been active in the movement against the death penalty with hmm. other exonerated former death row prisoners. He talks, he attends, he attends events called Texas Moratorium <laughs> Network which I've never heard of. Um, unfortunately, I couldn't really find any Michael Graham, but I only was able to find on Albert, Albert Burrell, which I thought was interesting that he's still... Um, he doesn't really have any sites. He just gives talks and stuff. I thought you said Texas something. Texas Morale. He lives in Center, Texas. No, down further. You said somewhere Texas Morale or something. Oh, he, he tends vents called through the Texas Moratorium Network, which I... Checked out? I will... So I thought this case was really interesting because I'd never heard of it, but it's really sad that they're like, even though you were on death row because your ex-wife decided uh, she she was upset of custody, I'm going to ruin your life. And this other guy's like, I'm going to ruin this other guy's life because for some reason he thought... 
Who well, knows? He got, he got better deal in jail. Yeah, unfortunately. I don't know what the pending charges is. It's like, I'm going to mess your life up for 14 years. So. Did she marry the brother? Yeah, she was remarried to his brother, which makes even more, like, more suspicious. But yeah, that's the. And I named the. I titled this episode, um, uh, No Compensation for 14 Years. Instead of Albert Burrell. How about no compensation for, what do you, you call again, for incarceration? For, incar for, 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 14, for incarceration for 14 years. Yeah. Which I was like, that's incredibly tragic. They were like, you can't prove anything. Even though your sentences were vacated, we're sorry, there's nothing, I no money. I tell some of the evidence they held back. Well, I couldn't find anything. Like, I could find... Exculpatory evidence. I couldn't find anything. Like, on this murder, what the... I couldn't find nothing. And to get police reports, you have to actually physically talk to the police station, the district and stuff. And you have... And if you want to go to a site, you have to be a lawyer. And I'm not a lawyer. And I don't know which court I would... Which police, said, police office station I would talk to you about this so yeah it's like it's also sad that um but yeah i couldn't really find anything on the murder of um the frost the two the frost family or anything like that so i could i could only find on either exonerations and that was it and the i thought it was interesting about the whole trial oh it was really sad and their case still hasn't been solved so I thought that was an interesting case, and that has been... Well, a lot of times it comes up again, the, the person, and it does come up eventually, who did it. What yep. can be hidden can be revealed. Yep. Well, that was everything. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and um, you guys have a great, have a great week. See you next week on um, Crime Candy. Bye.